Blog Talk Radio. for joining us. I'm Marcia Joyner, host of Betrayed by Hospice, brought to you in coordination with Marcel Reed, the Whistleblower Summit, and our producer, Marty Oakley. Tonight, I want to honor a fallen advocate and previous guest on this program, Sparky Johnson, who was an amazing, compassionate warrior who fought for the elderly and the disabled. She, too, was disabled and in a wheelchair, but you would never know it from her energy and the trips that she made every weekend in Canada to hold up signs outside establishments and warn others of the dangers. This weekend, Sparky's roommate confessed to murdering her. Sparky will be greatly missed and always said her goal was to share the truth and spread the light to all. Rest in peace, my friend. We have to watch. None of us ever know when we may take our last breath or it may be taken from us. Tonight our program is going to be different than in the past as we focus on what happens when you are having difficulty breathing and you need help. There are numerous scenarios where this might occur. You may have sleep apnea, a respiratory infection, or maybe you're diagnosed with congestive heart failure or COPD, or you just go to the hospital with breathing issues, or maybe someone says you have COVID. Whatever the case is, it would be best for you to be able to understand what a doctor is prescribing for you. Tonight, I have asked an expert on the subject to come share her vast experience with us. Michelle Young-Dewers, and many of you may be familiar with her from previous shows, or she was on last week also with Marty talking about hospice. She wrote a book, Killing for Profit, The Dark Side of Hospice, where she exposed the truth, the unvarnished truth, from the inside of the hospice about their lies and manipulations. Michelle is a registered respiratory therapist who has over 30 years of experience in this field. So who better to talk to us about this? If you have a question during tonight's session, select one on your phone to be put into a queue to speak directly to Michelle. She is not a doctor, and she cannot diagnose anyone, but she can help you understand the differences of the breathing apparatus. So let's get started. Michelle. Thank you for coming on once again with us this evening to share your expertise. I know we've started to count on you quite a bit because you have the knowledge that many of us seek. So if I can let you go ahead and start with giving us some information on different breathing apparatuses. Well, thank you, Marcia, for having me on again. Uh, I thought tonight we would talk about the difference in CPAPs 
BiPAPs and ventilators, which all augment the uh, breathing pattern or breathing of the patient. To start off, we can start with uh, CPAP. And CPAP is for continuous positive airway pressure. And it is use a small device, and it's basically used as a for sleep apnea. It splints open the airways so the patient can breathe um, better. They don't snore, and um, it's a prescription device from a physician, usually following a sleep study. And a sleep study will uh, give you the numbers you need for the particular pressures for the machine. CPAP is just one pressure. So you can use it as a, a full face mask or nasal pillows. If, if, you're, if you're familiar with what a nasal cannula is, which delivers low-flow oxygen, nasal pillows are a little fatter in diameter and they fit up into the nose and have a little seal. So when you at night when you're breathing, it blows a little bit of pressure, and it's constant pressure, usually five, eight centimeters of water, sometimes up to ten. But once you get up to it to about ten, you're now into the BiPAP range, which. I'll follow up with that in just a minute. So CPAP you would wear throughout the night, and again, that's basically just for sleep apnea. Then like a step up, which is a little bit more aggressive in therapy, would be, I'm sorry, do you have any questions on that? Part? Well, I, when you were talking about this, so I'm imagining when you're talking about this, is you have um, one plastic tube up either nostril. It's not the um, apparatus that goes over your nose, like, you know, you see in movies and stuff, and it's covering their face. So this is just two tubes that go up in your nose, and it's just allowing you to, you physically are doing the breathing, and you're breathing in the oxygen. Is that right? Okay. Yes. So let me backtrack just a little bit. The CPAP is the machine that would, like, sit on someone's bedside, plug into the wall, and then the tubing from the machine to your face is the um, interface part. And the interface can be a full face mask, which would go over the bridge of your nose, around down your cheeks, and down to your chin. And it would completely cover your nose and your mouth. Oh, and then okay. there's a then there's a nasal mask, which will just fit as it says, just over your nose. So it goes over the bridge of your nose, and then down on top of your uh, upper lip. Okay, so it just it's like a little triangle that's just covering your nose. That's a, a nasal mask, and then the okay. nasal pillows are. <clears throat> Short, um, usually about uh, three quarters of an inch long. They're round and they're uh, soft, pillowy type. That and they're hollow inside, 
and they fit into your nose, just inside, just a little bit into your nose, and then it attaches that to, to that corrugated tubing that goes back to the machine. So the okay, machine so that's what I'm thinking CPAP. about then. Okay. So those uh, are called then, pillows. Right, pillows. Okay. Gotcha. And those, and those three types of interface, the pillows, the nasal mask, and the full face mask, are used with a CPAP and can also be used with a BiPAP. Okay. And if if a patient needs a little bit of oxygen at night the oxygen can be bled in through a little adapter um, through the machine. So you, you either, most just use room air. Because patients with sleep apnea, which is an obstructive issue, isn't necessarily a lung issue. You follow me? So yes. the obstruction is in the upper airway, not that they have a problem getting oxygen across the membrane in their lungs. So they just need a little bit of help with splinting open that upper airway part so they wouldn't need the oxygen. Some patients do need it, so it, it can easily be adapted and bled into the, through the machine to the patient. Okay. So that's, that's a CPAP. And then a BiPAP, which is, like I said, a little bit stepped up. And BiPAP meaning two levels. We now have one level for exhaling, and then you have a little bit of a higher level when you're inhaling. So it augments your breathing. I'm sorry, let me back up just a minute. The CPAP will not have a rate on it. So it's, if you, the patient has to be able to breathe to be on a CPAP. It's not going to force any air into you or like a tidal volume or give you a rate of like 12 a minute. All it does is just blow air out. No alarm usually, no backup rate, no battery. It's a very basic type item for sleep Okay, a BiPAP. Now we're getting a little bit more aggressive in the therapy. And it's going to be two, like I said, two levels. <clears throat> if you think of your lungs like a, a balloon, you know when you when you blow up a balloon and then you let all the air out, the balloon doesn't go all the way back to nothing. There's still a little bit of air in the balloon. Do you follow me? Yes. Right. Okay. So when you're breathing in, the machine, say we have a, a BiPAP of 5 over 10. The five sonometers of water pressure is going to be the baseline. You're going to have that continuous pressure of five. So when you go to exhale out, the least amount of positive airway pressure in your lungs is going to be that five. And I'm just using those numbers. It could be any numbers depending on the person's sleep study. It goes down to five. Then when the patient inhales, the machine will ramp up and push out more pressure to, say, 10 centimeters of pressure. So the, the patient will feel that extra air being pushed into them, expanding their lungs when they take that breath in, augments their breath. And then when they reach that pressure, 
threshold of 10, the machine will ramp down to that 5 again, allowing the patient to exhale. And then when they've fully exhaled and they start to breathe in again, the machine will sense that and augment their inspiration again. So it's an in-out, regular breathing, but the, the BiPAP is going to be there to help and assist them. Do you follow me? It does, well, does that mean that they cannot breathe in and out by themselves, that they need help doing that? Because you said earlier, if the CPAP, they have to be able to initiate the breathing. But with a BiPAP, do they initiate it, or is it doing it for them? On a, on a BiPAP, the patient's doing it on their own. And if okay. they want to take a bigger breath than the 10 centimeters when the, when the machine kicks on and the patient takes a nice big deep breath in, they may override the machine. And okay. they can take as big of a breath as they want. It's just there, again, to augment them and to assist them. And the reason for the two levels is to make it easier for the patient to blow out. If you had a patient that needed, say, 10 centimeters all the time, it would be hard. They would begin to tire because now they're breathing back out against that 10 centimeters all. Follow me? It's like rushing all towards you and you're, you're having to breathe back against it. So when mm-hmm. the pressure lowers, it allows you to exhale a little more easily. Okay, you so on that this part? particular, on your particular example, you're breathing in five and exhaling ten, right? Did I say when that right? When you breathe in, when when you breathe in, it's going to ramp up to ten, your higher number. Okay, and then the it'll drop off to the top. lower number when you go to exhale. Okay, is that typical that that the breathe-in number would typically be higher than the breathe-out number? Yes, that, that's okay. how, yes, it will always be that way, yes. Okay, and so, so what is your normal breathing pattern? If, if you're not connected to anything, um, what, what would your normal breathing pattern be? Would that be the 10 and the 5 for an, for an average person? Well, well, that's that would be an internal pressure, and it's going to be very for everyone. It's going to be atmospheric pressure, and you have that you have that um, your epiglottis there that opens and closes. So that that's getting off into the deep. That's way above where we are tonight. Okay. Okay. We're still in the well, basic the only reason I was asking is um, you know when Lisa Blake was on a few weeks ago. And she was talking about her mom, and she was mm-hmm. saying that the oxygen, you know, wasn't even attached at the back. It wasn't turned on. It wasn't attached. So for somebody, if I'm in the hospital and looking at a machine, I just, you know, wonder if it, the intake number, it would be obvious, right? They would have it on there, and you could see if your loved one was getting what the doctor had prescribed. It's it's obviously marked on there with a, a little number or something. Is that right? Are you talking about for the oxygen? Yes. Mm-hmm. In the hospital, oxygen is piped in through the walls, and there's going to be a flow meter 
on the wall that the nasal cannula or the tubing to the machine will be attached to. And that flow meter will be, um, if it's a low flow, the little ball in the in the flow meter will tell you where the oxygen, how much liters per minute are coming through that flow meter. Okay. Now, if if it's if her mom was like on a nasal cannula, the nasal cannula may have been disconnected from the little a nipple adapter that's on the flow meter that's at the back of the bed. That could be what it was. Okay. So a CPAP and a BiPAP are something that would be sent home. You get a prescription for it, and it would be sent mm-hmm. home and would be at your home that you would be using bedside or chair side if you needed it Correct. during the daytime. Okay. Correct. I gotcha. Correct. And then with the, with the BiPAP, because it's a little bit more aggressive than a CPAP, it's going to come with the majority of them will come with more bells and whistles. Like they'll have a built-in battery, they'll have a disconnect alarm, um, they'll have a backup rate, there'll be an internal setting that a therapist can set that if the patient doesn't breathe, there'll be backup respiratory rate and pressures that are locked in the machine for the in-case-of situation. And... um the BiPAP can be used as for sleep apnea. It can also be a therapeutic type item. Some patients um, need it just before they reach, say they have pulmonary fibrosis. If they're not doing well, they're going to try them on a BiPAP first before they go into maybe a, a ventilatory situation. You know, when a patient needs um, augmentation, you're going to start with the least aggressive therapy first and then work up to what the patient ultimately needs. You follow me? You want, you want to do yes. the least, right, okay. Now, of course, if, if the patient's coded and they need a ventilator or something, then, of course, you put them straight on a ventilator. You're not going to go through all these little little steps. Right. But, <clears throat> so you work up to it. Um. Okay, so are we good on the BiPAP? Yes, yes, I gotcha. Okay, okay. And then um, for ventilatory support, no, oh, let me back up, sorry. The There's also other therapies that now when you get up to the BiPAP region, there's high flow, there's oscillating, there's AVAPs and VPAPs. VPAPs, and, you know, some of these are, you can do like a Google search for them or DuckDuckGo myself but and to see what they are. Some of them like a VPAP, that's a ResMed uh, trademark for, it's just another version of a BiPAP. It's BiPAP, they renamed it just so they can say that they have something special. So usually the, the manufacturers, the big ones are, Respironics, ResMed, and Philips. Those are the three um, big manufacturers of, of CPAPs and BiPAPs. And then when we get into ventilatory care, and again, there's going to be other therapies that you may try before ventilatory care. You're going to try really aggressive BiPAP and 
other other little side shoots before you have to intubate somebody. But once you get into ventilatory care, a ventilator, you're going to have a, a rate, a respiratory rate. You're going to have a tidal volume. How much air do you, or gas do you want to give a patient with each respiratory breath? Um, there's going to be pressures you can give. Um, there's going to be... Um, how much oxygen do you want them on? And then all of that is going to be determined by a, a blood gas, a simple blood draw analysis of arterial blood, which will give you a pH, a, a PO2, and a PCO2 to tell you the, whether you're acid base, how much oxygen you have, how much carbon dioxide you have. Um, and then that will, by the like the sleep study, tells you what pressures you need for the CPAP and the BiPAP, the, the blood gas with the pH, PCO2, and CO2 is going to tell you how much of a ventilatory support and how you're going to um, manage that patient on that uh, ventilator. And ventilators go by various names. We don't always call ventilators ventilators in a hospital. You may say, you know, do you have a, a trilogy available well, a trilogy is a brand name for a ventilator, a spe- specific ventilator, or a servo. Or <clears throat> so those um, those are the kind of the three steps of uh, the CPAP, BiPAP, and ventilatory support. Would you is the ventilator something that you would use at your home, or is that strictly a hospital? No, there, there's plenty of patients at home on ventilators. Um, we know the a- ALS patients, the MS patients, those type of chronic, long-term, um, progressive type diseases. Patients have ventilators, and they may start off using them maybe just at night or just a couple hours during the day. When they start to get tired, they'll put They'll go on them for a couple of hours, and then it normally progresses to a 24-7 type issue, and the patient and family members are quite well adapt to taking care of, you know, their loved ones in a, you know, on a ventilator at home. And they're certainly not left by themselves, well, you would hope not, in a situation that a, um, a company whoever's uh, leasing the ventilator to the family would come out like once a month and make sure, you know, they've changed all the equipment, that they have all the disposable, they check the machine and make sure it's working properly. If it needs uh, QA done, that they do that or whatever needs to be done. If it needs to be serviced, if it's time for it to be, you know, certified again, they change it out to another machine and a patient, some patients go home on ventilators from a hospital. I've done that plenty of times. When you take a ventilator into the hospital, you transition the patient over to the new home unit. Um, the patient's there within the facility. The family, you go over the teaching with the family. The family's responsible then for like two days in the hospital to take care of the ventilator. They still have the backup of the nurses in the hospital while they're there. Um, but it kind of gets them acclimated to getting used to that uh, taking care of the ventilator. And then you take them home, you know, 
transport them home. You follow. You go to the home, make sure they're comfortable. You're there for a couple of hours, and it's uh, it, it is quite a process to have a patient go home. But it certainly is. It's very commonplace these days for patients to go home on ventilators. That, like I said, with these disease processes at home and. Uh, I've even had a couple of hospice patients go home on ventilators. What were you going to ask? Well, I think that, um, well, I'm thinking of Lisa again. I'm sorry, I keep going back mm-hmm. to Lisa. No, no, you're good. Listening. But when Lisa was talking about, not Lisa, Becky, Becky Harbor, when she was talking about her husband, I don't know if you remember her, she was back early January, and she talked about her husband, and they were going to put him on a trilogy. And she thought when she went to the next facility from the Mayo Clinic that they were going to teach her how to use it. And she mm-hmm. was going to be going home, and her husband was going to be on the trilogy ventilator. But then when she got there, they said, no, no, we're not, we're not going to teach you how to use that. And that's when they were telling her, you know, this is kind of end of life. But that is not what she was originally told. Um, So what you're saying is, or listening to what you're saying, is you would need somebody to come in and to train you on how to use that equipment. And that is what she believed was fixing to happen when they released her husband from Mayo Clinic. So I don't know if you remember her talking about that. But you say that. I do remember that. Yeah, so you saying that just brings it up to me that there, there is educational things and that a family would need to know how do I operate this, what do I do, what if it does this or it doesn't do this. Right, so, right, right, right. So, okay, so that you get the educational thing from the, the care people that come in. So with the BiPAP or the CPAP, is one of those, do they have – water that you use in there that so that when it's in the in the nose that it doesn't dry the nose out or either one of those yes. machines go ahead yes they have little um water uh reservoirs that um you usually use distilled water in now they they're trying to transition especially the uh bipap Ventilators, you're not going to use a, a reservoir as much unless the patient um, complains of uh, being dry. But there are um, little um, filters that go in line that collect the moisture from you when you breathe out. And then when you your next breath, you pull that moisture back out of the filter and you're you're using that. It's like an artificial nose type, um, and it does away with the humidifier. A humidifier is good in some instances on a ventilator. Usually it's not good on some ventilators. It depends on the patient and the usage. But on BiPAPs, it can go either way. CPAPs, you're going to have a reservoir. Go ahead. But with the ventilator, is it... With the BiPAP and the CPAP, you're using the same type of um, what did you call interface? Do you use mm-hmm. the same interface on the ventilator? This, you know, it's a little bit. Covers? 
it's a little bit different uh, okay. because the ventilator is going to be a closed system as opposed to a BiPAP or CPAP is going to be in more of an open system. Uh, ventilators are a lot more sensitive to uh, changes in pressures, and what you want them to be. That's that's what you want, and um, the the interface at the face, whether it, it's um, a, a full face or nasal, if it's a ventilator, especially long term, it's going to be uh, to a trach, a tracheostomy. Because and if it's a ventilator, a it's going to be twenty four seven. Right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. So, um, with these, we've heard quite often, um, you know, like a year or so ago, when the patients that had contracted COVID were in the hospital, that majority of them, you know, right off the bat, they wanted to put everybody on a ventilator. So, is the ventilator in the hospital the one that a lot of these COVID patients were put on? Is it like the closed ventilator system that you're talking about, the trilogy and whatnot, that is sent home, or is it the one that is coming out of the wall that you're set, that you were talking about earlier? So the hospital one is different than the ventilator that is sent home with people. Is that correct or that's not correct? Well, a, a ventilator is a type of machine that's going to give you a rate, pressure, volume, right? And those are in the hospital and they are at home. The ones at home are more portable, they're smaller, they have backup battery, um, they have uh, bleed-in oxygen, as opposed to the units in the hospital, they still give a rate, a volume, pressures, oxygen. Uh, they're manufacturers could be different. Um, they're obviously going to be more durable, and they're going to allow for higher FiO2s, meaning more oxygen, than you would have in the home because they can um, they connect directly to the piped-in oxygen in the wall. So that's usually the the difference between home ventilators and hospital ventilators is the oxygen amount. Okay. You follow me? And those that are made at home are made to lock up so you can't change the settings. You know, a therapist can unlock it to change the settings, but other than that, they're locked so no one can change the settings in the home, and they're made to be portable as opposed to hospital ventilators. Do okay. you follow me? Yes. Okay. Well, they're they're much more sophisticated in the hospital. And yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and clearly they're not portable. That's not the intent of them. Right. So with the question on why were there, you know, and you hear so many things, so I'm just asking since you are the expert on this, what we heard, a lot of us heard, is that when they put them on the ventilator, that that is what actually caused a lot of the patients to that had COVID 
to pass is, in your opinion, is there any validity to that, that you could get too much oxygen or putting those patients on oxygen caused irreparable damage to the individual's lungs? Okay. I know this is a controversial subject. I'm going to give you just There was so much chaos going on up there that not, okay, let me back up. In a regular hospital setting, normal day-to-day, pulmonologists are responsible with the respiratory therapist to take care of that ventilator and that patient, right? Because the pulmonologist and the therapist know lungs, and they know, you know, arterial blood gases. In that, and if we're talking about New York, there was so much chaos going on up there that there there would not have been enough pulmonologists to be able to see all those patients that were being put on ventilators. So down in the ER, the ventilators would have been managed by the ER doctor. Now, I think ER doctors are great at trauma. They're great at, you know, coding a patient. But when you come to ventilatory care of a patient, that's not their specialty. And if if you're not trained properly, the way you manage a ventilatory patient, part of it is that you have to come up with a respiratory rate and you have to come up with a tidal volume to start off with. Because right now, when you've, you've drawn blood gases on a patient and those blood gases are telling you, this patient is failing, we need to do something, and doing something is intubating that patient and putting them on a ventilator, right? So those mm-hmm. first settings that you put that patient on right after you intubate them are critical. And too many times I have seen where a doctor, not a pulmonologist, but a doctor wants to put a patient on ventilatory settings based upon their body weight and not their ideal body weight. And there's a big difference in that. And this is when I heard coming out of New York, they were using higher tidal volumes. They thought high tidal volumes were the answer. I don't know what they thought the, the high tidal volumes were the answer to. I'd like to have seen the question that they thought that high tidal volumes were the answer. The problem with high tidal volumes is that now you're causing barotrauma. You're causing trauma within, within the lung tissue. And the lungs are very delicate. They're, it's a very delicate organ. And when you start pushing pressures into these, um, into your lungs, 
the the issue is say I'm five foot ten and I weigh hundred and thirty pounds. That may be ideal weight, right? So you're gonna calculate uh, a volume of air based on ideal body weight. But now say I'm five foot ten and I weigh two hundred and fifty pounds. And you're going to base my tidal volume off my weight. Of your actual has weight. My actual weight. Has, okay. if, I was, if I weighed 150 or 250, has the, my, the size of my lungs changed? Ah, okay. So I see. If you give a higher volume based on body weight, especially if you're overweight, which that may have been the case, um, now you're giving more air, right? You're more gases, that volume of air. They've artificially inflated that number, so now they're pushing a bigger volume into that patient. And if that all that weight that is surrounding your lungs, your lungs are actually going to be a little bit smaller because you they're kind of smushed in with all the fat that's surrounding them. Do you follow me? I do. Mm-hmm. So now here comes that barotrauma. Now they're forcing, like a piston, forcing that air down into those lungs, and it's just, that right there is going to cause some inflammation in the lung. Mm-hmm. Lungs are made up like, say, a bunch of grapes. A bunch of grapes. You have this little air sac, like a grape, little air sac, and it's on a small airway, and that small airway keeps branching bigger and bigger until you get to your larger airways and then up to your trachea, Right? Okay. So, oh, or if you think someone mentioned uh, like an upside down tree, I mean, I don't know where that came from, but like if you, not the roots, but if you have that, the trunk is your, like your wind, what people call their windpipe, right? Mm -hmm. And then all the little leaves would be the little air sacs. When you breathe in, the air goes down that main windpipe and it branches off into these little air airways that get smaller and smaller and smaller until you get to these little air sacs. You have like 500 million of these little air sacs that they, when you breathe in, they expand a little bit. And then the the gases, oxygen, passes from the lungs through this membrane into the blood stream, and the blood carries it off to be used by the, the body, the cellular level, And then a a waste product of oxygen usage is carbon dioxide. So now carbon dioxide comes around back to the, you know, like a little train, comes back to the little alveoli station, and, you know, carbon dioxide jumps off. Is it now in your lungs and you blow out carbon dioxide? So you're breathing in oxygen. It's going down. It's being used by your tissue site, and then you're blowing out carbon dioxide. Um. I have no idea where I was headed with that. <laughs> where were we with that? You should, <laughs> well, you should see the picture that I'm sitting here drawing. I'm drawing an upside-down tree and trying to write. Oh, 
kind of what you're saying about the air coming in, the carbon dioxide underneath. So, yeah, I'm drawing pictures while you're talking. Um, well, because you, what you're saying, you started with saying that the weight of somebody and how they pushed more in than their lungs could take because it didn't mean that their lungs were any bigger. And so right. you're actually inflating them and mm-hmm. all those little leaves down there. Over-inflating. You know, the mm-hmm. You're over-inflating. Right. Kind of opposite so, from, you know, the um, inflate gate with the football, but the opposite thing. Right, right, right. No right, pun right. intended. Yeah. And if you look, and if you look at uh, what was happening in New York, and I'm I'm not picking on New York. I'm just using them as an example of what happened because everybody pretty much knows what happened up there. Um, you know, we know that those COVID testing, they had no idea what these patients, whether they had COVID or not. Right. So it, you know, and they were getting incentives to say that the patient had COVID. So you know what? If you're giving a hospital thirty, forty thousand dollars extra per patient that has COVID, every patient that's in that hospital is going to have COVID. I mean, that that's basic laws of making money, money in healthcare. Money. So, so, and if everybody, if they're doing that for as many ventilators as they had, because you remember them saying they needed more ventilators, they needed more ventilators. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, from reading your book, when you were talking in there about, you know, a new therapist, uh, respiratory therapist that had come in, or somebody else, another nurse is there, and they're saying, well, the patient's having a hard time breathing, and you say, well, you know, what is this set at? I don't know. Well, what what right. did you do? And it's a very unique training that you take to become mm-hmm. a respiratory therapist. It's not just like a nurse that comes in there, you know, and changes the bedpan or, you know, gives an injection of morphine or whatever. Yours is very, very specific, and if you don't know what you're talking about and you don't know how everything is set up and it's not set up properly, you can kill a patient, Oh, absolutely! Oh, that 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 can be so easily done, and right. the, and the thing was, well, you know, other therapists when during that time when they're calling for more ventilators, more ventilators, more ventilators, it, it, like, well, who is going to run your ventilators? I can get right. you know, we can ship you all the ventilators you want, but who knows how to use them? Correct. And then it was months later. Later that they were saying, oh, now we need therapists up here. Well, you should have therapists up there to begin with. And, you know, I don't think that, but that wasn't what they did things the way they wanted things to happen and the way things turned out the way they had, they turned out, honestly. True. And, but, it, you know, it cost people their lives because mm-hmm. you didn't have, you know, you didn't have the specialists there that knew what was going on and that would have administered everything correctly. So I think that was you, by design. I, I totally believe that that was true, that, that is, you know, it's part of just calling people, getting rid of the people yes. that are costing yes. money. But with being on a ventilator, I know one of the things that 
which we won't go into it a lot because I know it's kind of painful for you, but that's one of the things that, you know, when a loved one is at the end of their life and they're on a, a ventilator and they have to be taken off, you know, sometimes people come back from that, um, like Jenny Hammond that I had on some, some time ago. She was considered brain dead, and she was on a ventilator for months. And when they took her off of the ventilator, the, the lady that was in there, the nice one, because she remembers there were two, even though she was, they said she was brain dead and the doctor wanted to take her body parts, her husband refused to let him do it. And when they did mm-hmm. take the ventilator off after, I think, like three months, and one of the nurses was in there talking to her, and she said, you've got to do this. I know you can do this. Breathe, breathe. And she did. Mm-hmm. So even after being on it and being in a coma for three months, she came out of it once they took her oxygen off. But they mm-hmm. didn't know if she would or she wouldn't. You know, it was kind of, you know, you stand there, everybody else around the room holding their breath, hoping that she's going to be able to take her first breath. And she did, and, you know, she said it was very painful. But this nurse talking to her is what made her take her breath because she was encouraged to do so. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my point with that. Go ahead, sorry. Well, I was just going to say with what you had to do in your position as a hospice respiratory therapist was not, you know, being able to coerce somebody or um, encourage them to start breathing because you knew at that point when the oxygen is removed that the individual cannot breathe on their own, you know, totally different circumstances. But with covid I can see now, you know, with your description, how it was that they got too much oxygen and they also did not have the the right people there doing the right job. Right. I I don't know that it was too much oxygen. It was inappropriate ventilatory management. In your, yes, I'm thinking of it, it was it put too much oxygen in those leaves in that upside-down tree because they didn't get the right body weight and the the size of the lungs. Well, for instance, a woman's lungs are, well, maybe I don't know this, but I assume based on everything that's happening, you know, with the, the guy swimmer, that his lungs are larger, his capacity is larger than a woman's lungs. Is that true do women have typically smaller lungs than men that is true it's based on age um uh, ethnic asian orient have smaller lungs than say african-americans um there's all you know it's a very individual that's why you need to know what you're working with not art and artificial and when i say artificial are you Overweight or underweight. Mm-hmm. Follow me. So right, there, it's a one size, it's a one size fits all, like hospice with their toxic cocktail. Right, mm-hmm. right, 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 right. Um, there was something you had mentioned about. Um, I don't want people to be afraid of ventilators. That's not. 
that's not my intent. Don't be afraid of ventilators. If if people did not go on ventilators and come off of them, we would never have surgery again. I mean, the whole time you're in surgery, you're on a ventilator. So that's not. And people right. go on temporarily on a ventilator. Some people, you know, patients have a really bad pneumonia and they're not able to do gas exchange properly. So they need to go on a ventilator just long enough to be cleaned up out of their lungs and get them basically back to where they need to be, and then they're extubated again. So sometimes it's very temporary. Sometimes it goes on, you know, for a while. I, there's um, there's another book I'm working on that I'm hoping to get finished soon. Uh, talks about a, a Mexican uh, boy that came over uh, with his mom, and he was on a ventilator for a couple of months in the ICU, and oh, one by one, the neurologist signed off, the cardiologist signed off, and they all, you know, all these other doctors signed off for, you know, the patient wasn't going to make it, and they had done their job, and but there was one pulmonologist that wouldn't give up, and even a nurse said to him, you know, everybody, there was, the patient was there, he was in the room, the doctor, I was in the room, and a nurse came in and told him that the last of the other physician had signed off, and this physician said, I'm not ready to give up yet. And he didn't give up, and it was, you know, it still was another month or so, but that little boy and I say little boy, he was was like 15, 16 years old, eventually made it off that ventilator, went to rehab, and then a year later he walks into our intensive care unit to to thank everyone that had taken care of him. Wow. And that was just, and he only lived because that one physician was not ready to give up yet. Right. Right. So, you know, it's things yeah, like that's that. Such a, that, but that's not all that's in your book, because if it is, you just gave us the whole no. story, and we won't have to go buy it. So I that's just have, one story, right? <laughs> I, there's a lot of things, yeah. What's the name of the book? Yeah, you've got, you're teasing us here. What's the name of the new book? The Breathing Girl. Okay. The Breathing Girl. The Breathing Girl. I've heard that before. Uh Uh-huh. That's it. Okay, that's your new book coming out. Well, you'll have to let me know when that comes out. So, Mm -hmm. but, and I'm not saying that people should be afraid of ventilators or CPAPs or BiPAPs or any of it. The point Mm -hmm. of tonight's session, you know, our time together, is to discuss what are these different apparatuses so that you know when a doctor starts talking to you about something, you know the right questions to ask, you know the terminology. And on our program a couple of weeks ago, Michelle had um, given us a list of questions to ask before you enroll into hospice. And 
this is the same type thing. You want to knowledge is power, and you want to be able to know what you're getting into. And by no means am I saying a ventilator is a bad thing because we all need to breathe. But by having the information and understanding, then we aren't as afraid of it as we might be otherwise. And at this time, I'll ask if anybody has any questions that if you select one on your phone, then you can be put in. Marty will bring you in to ask Michelle directly. Um, Otherwise, Michelle had also given us her email that if you have questions, you want to ask her directly. Michelle, do you want to give them your email again? It's it's thebreathinggirl at gmail.com. See? Told you I heard that. (laughs) (laughs) And that's going to be the name of her new book. So that works very well. So with um, hospice, because we have a few more minutes here, but um, with the hospice, we we didn't go into that because each week we, we do go into that. And last Friday, Marty had Michelle on her her program with Cause in the mix, and they also talked about a lot of good information about hospice and guardianship that everybody should be aware of. If you're not, then you need to catch that program or catch any other programs with Betrayed by Hospice and some of the programs that Michelle has been on because she's given us a ton of information. And her book, in case you haven't gotten it yet, um, actually there is another person in our group, Murdered by Hospice Facebook group, that is currently reading your book now. She just got it and she's she's reading it now. But the name of that book is Killing for Profit, the dark side of hospice and it is truly dark when you read in Michelle's book what has occurred and all of the different instances and stories and they're quite interesting as well because uh, Michelle puts her heart and soul into this because she's very compassionate about what she does and about people in general Thanks. so I, I would ask if um, if anyone has my book, if they would leave a review on Amazon. And normally I would not ask, but the Amazon algorithm is king. And it, one review really does make a difference. And I'm just asking for an honest review. I'm not asking for a five-star or a one-star. I'm just asking for an honest review. I would right. greatly appreciate it. Well, because it helps you, too, you know, in, in reading yeah. what people say and, you know, for yeah. your next book. Um, I know in your your book, Killing for Profit, that you have information in there about the respiratory system some of the information mm-hmm. we've got, not all, but some of the information is in there along with the stories and how hospice got to be hospice and what it was originally intended for. And, you know, Cicely Saunders originally started hospice in 1967, and so Michelle has a lot of the history in the beginning of her book as well. So it's it's got a lot going for it and very 
easy read but sad in many cases. But, but definitely my next your book, heartstrings. Thanks. But my next book will be a mixture of good and bad. It it'll it'll be quite a mixed bag of stories. So you'll have because the heartwarming and the heartbreaking. Unfortunately, yes. Yes. One goes with the but, other. But it's knowledge, and it's getting the information yes. out there so people understand what is happening before they get in a situation where it happens to them and you can't turn back. You know, you're deep in it. And and that so. was my purpose for the uh, Killing for Profit one was education. Well, but how did you know when you wrote that book how many people's lives it was going to touch? No. No, I didn't. No. And I just knew still, that I knew. Go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. I just knew that what was being done was wrong. And unless you tell someone, it will remain in the dark and still be done. And that was that was the whole purpose behind writing The Killing for Profit was to hopefully help someone else that they wouldn't go through what I witnessed hospice do. Well, and it was it's cloaked. I mean, that's the thing. is It's hidden and it's cloaked, and people don't really know because they've been taught that it is compassionate, and it was at one point, but now mm-hmm. it is a way to call people and to get rid of the elderly and the disabled. And in a horrific way, um, mm-hmm. the drugs they use are the same drugs they use to execute prisoners on death row. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, that's my next program is going to be on the different types of drugs that they are using. The one size that will all. be good. Yep. So it's um, it's quite tragic. Um, we have two minutes, so I'm going to turn it over to you if you have anything you want to say. Marty, did you have any questions? If she does, she'll jump in here. Um, <laughs> Michelle, do you want any final thoughts? No, I, I, I think we're good, and I think we, we covered a lot tonight. Thank okay, you. So Thank you. we covered covered that. So hopefully um, she's been able to impart some of her wisdom on to you. And knowledge is power. If you've got questions, you can ask her by sending it to thebreathinggirl at gmail.com, and she will be happy to answer your questions. So until our next program, I wish everybody a good night, and thank you for tuning in this evening. Thank you, Marty, for taking care of everything. And, Michelle, a huge thanks to you again for coming on and sharing your wisdom with us. Everybody have a good night. Thank you, Marcia. Okay. Good Good night, Michelle. Good night. Thank you.